Welcome to Champions Forum, hosted by Ed Milet. My guest today is someone who's had a tremendous influence on not only my life, but many of you that are listening to this. He's influenced your life, helped alter the direction of it like he has for me. I think most people would consider him to be the primary influence of the United States on peak performance, on change, on breakthroughs. And he's also now entered the business of the financial services world and is making a huge difference in people's lives in that arena as well. And so I'm so excited. If I could pick one guest to be on this program, it would be this man right here. So I want to thank and welcome Tony Robbins to the show today. Tony, thank you for being here. Yeah, it's great to be with you, my friend. How are you? I'm doing good, and uh, good, good. I've been waiting and waiting on this forever. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad we finally were able to put it together. Me too, me too. Let's get right into it, brother. Okay, so everybody looks at you, and you know, this is a guy I, on Instagram today. He's got a thing out when he was working with Princess Diana or Bill Clinton or the various CEOs that he's worked with, some of the top people in the world, Oprah Winfrey. And I think that's an impressive thing about you, but I think I'm more impressed because Tony and I belong to some of the same clubs and we run in some similar circles sometimes. And I think the more impressive thing that I hear about you is when I'm, I've got a caddy on a golf course and he tells me most biggest compliment give me is that I remind him of you, the way I treat people. And, <laughs> oh, that's sweet. And that really touches my heart. No, and they tell me, you know, how kind you are when no one's watching or servers at our different clubs or restaurants, just the way you treat people. People ask me all the time, do you think he's the real thing? Are you the real thing? And you are. You're, you're a genuine good soul. And I think that I think people need to know that. Yeah, you're this powerful guy and you've had all this influence, but at your core, you're just a good man. And well, thank you for that. I'm not, I love people. I, you know, that's what drives me. I love to light people up. I hate to see suffering, uh, probably because I suffered so much myself in my own youth. Um, you know, I grew up in a very tough environment. I know you know, Ed. Yeah. Uh, and I had a younger brother, younger sister, you know, five and seven years younger that I was looking out for, trying to protect. And a mom that was a beautiful soul, but when she got, which was daily, <laughs> drunk, and when she used prescription drugs, she was extremely violent and would, you know, slam my head against the wall until I bled or pour liquid soap down my throat until I threw up. And I never even talked about it until she passed. And one day I was with this group of kids that were all physically abused. And I'm the six foot seven white guy. Like you say, it looks like, okay, he's, he's tall. He's got, I mean, he's got great economics and great opportunity. And he seems so enthusiastic. And, yeah. But nobody knows what, what, where I come from. And so... I, for the first time, because I looked these kids in the eyes, and I could tell when I was telling them, they were looking at me like some rich white guy. And so I said, let me tell you the story. And I told them the whole story, and I was in tears, and they were in tears. Wow. But out of that made me have this drive to want to help and, and also uh, really want to make a difference in every aspect of somebody's life. Because, you know, I went through the challenges of four different fathers and <laughs> the confusion wow. of that. I went through <laughs> the physical abuse. I went through the experiences of, you know, being in high school, and I wasn't a popular kid, but I loved people. And the most popular kid in school was the meanest son of a bitch to me that I'd ever seen. It, it made me obsessed and want to know what makes people do what they do. And just to be able to deal with my mom, I became a practical psychologist. I really had to figure out quickly what can I do to change her state, to change her emotion, to shift her so that she doesn't hurt somebody, uh, herself, my family, myself. And, and those skill sets that started in my youth, they were an obsession. So I mean, I, once I figured out how to make changes in my own life, Quickly, I became obsessed with reading because I had no mentors, I had no role models, I had no one of access to any form of what you would call business or financial or personal success, no role models of that nature. So books became that. And I took a speed reading class with Jim Rohn, my teacher, and I got so excited about reading and I decided, you know, listen, I, you know, a person takes a decade of their life and Rohn used to say they put it in a book. You know, he said, he used to talk about, you know, read 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day before you even have a meal, you know, make sure you don't miss that. And so I got into reading a book a day and I didn't quite do that, but I read 700 books over seven years, wow. human development, psychology, physiology. So by the time I was in high school, I was Mr. Solution. You had the problem, I had the solution, especially if you were a girl, I was actually inspired. This is high you. school. You're saying already in yeah. high school you were this way. Yeah. yeah. I was that way in junior high school, but by high school, it was my identity. I mean, people came to me at that stage. And then I went to work for Jim Rohn, this personal development speaker. And then I eventually broke off and started my own company with his support. And I started brokering other speakers, including him. And then eventually I became better than most of the speakers I was brokering. And so I started doing my own events. And then I diversified the content of those events. And, and a big, huge part of all this, though, that I think why I'm so connected to people, I just, it's my nature. But also when we were really young, when I was 11 years old, we had no money and we had no food on Thanksgiving. It's not like we would have starved. My parents were creative. Somebody 
you know, they would have got us a meal at some point, if not that night, the next day. Um, but we were going to have a Thanksgiving dinner, and I had this knock at the door, and I went to the door, and there's this tall man standing with these two bags of groceries in his hands, and on the ground there was a pot with uncooked turkey in it that he'd set down. Mm-hmm. And he said, is your father here? And I said, just one moment. I went and grabbed my dad, and, mm-hmm. and it was one of those moments that was surreal because it shaped my whole life because my dad was angry. He's like, we don't accept charity. He went to kind of mm-hmm. slam the door, and the man put his foot in the door, kind of bounced off. He said, sir, you know. These are from somebody that knows you're having a tough time. They want you to have a beautiful Thanksgiving. My dad went to push the door again and, and more intensely said, we don't accept charity with a real anger at him. And a guy at this time put his shoulder against the door, said hit the foot and shoulder and bounced off. And it was one of those tense moments where I thought my dad might hit him. And he looked at him and said, he saw me in the corner and said, looked over and pointed at me and said, you know, don't let your ego get in the way of your own family. And mm. I thought my dad would hit him for sure at that point. Oh. But he didn't, thank God. He just took the food, slammed it down, slammed the door in the man's face, never thanked him. And the difference in my life was, you know, I, I figured this out years later, that we all make decisions. As people are listening to you and I right now, every moment of their life, they're making three decisions. First, you've got to decide what to focus on. Are you going to listen to what someone's saying, the tone, the tempo? Are you going to think about something else? Are you going to think about dinner, lunch, what you've got to do next? Whatever you focus on, you're going to feel. Whether it's true or not, you're going to feel it. And then you give it a meaning. It's like, you know, is this the end or the beginning? You know, is this person thrashing me? Are they challenging me? Are they trying to give me a gift? Are they loving on me? And the decisions we make about what to focus on, what things mean, and what to do, those three decisions shape us. And my dad that day focused on the fact that, you know, that he had not taken care of his family. I know that because he spoke about it out loud in a very intense way. Yeah. And, and I know what it meant to him. It meant to him that he was worthless because he said it over and over again. And then mm-hmm. his action was to leave our family, which at that time wow. was the worst experience I thought of my life. Wow. But it turned out to be the best experience for me because it didn't feel like it. But I focused on the fact there was food, you know, what it comes to. Right. And what it meant to me, though, is what changed my life. And it's a long way of answering your question, but it's important. And that is that I decided that that means strangers care. And if strangers cared about me, I decided that I got to care about strangers. And so I promised myself I would turn around and do the same thing for others someday. So when I was 17, I fed two families, and it was a really emotional experience. And then next year, it was four, and every year I was doubling it. And then I got my little employees involved. I had a small company at that point with like 25 employees. And then it grew to a million people, and then eventually got to two million a year, and I started matching it. So we fed four million a year, and then I was writing Money Master the Game about four years ago. I'm interviewing all these billionaires. And I watched Congress wipe out food stamps, you know, by a point of $6.8 billion. Mm. And so it's called the SNAP program now. Yep. So they call it food stamps, but same thing. And I thought to myself, I'm walking around with these billionaires, and they're taking a week's worth of food from every family in the United States that needs it. One week out of the month, they got to give it up unless other people step up. And so I said, you know, I fed 42 million people in my lifetime at that stage. Gosh. What if I fed that many people in a year? And then I got more inspired, and I decided to make it $100 million. And so for the last three years, I fed $100 million people each year for the last three years. So we've fed 350 million people so far. We're going to feed a billion over the next seven years in my partnership with Feeding America. Oh, my that gosh. Kind of took me in the direction that I'm in in my life now. So the catalyst for feeding hundreds of millions of people was this experience at your front door. With the, with it really is. I, I look back unreal. at it, and I always tell people, you, the worst day of your life is your best day if you find a way to find a more empowering meaning out of it, as corny as it sounds. It's, it true. Doesn't, it's not corny, and I, that's what I took from what you just said. Obviously, what you do is important, but real quick, that, that's, everyone has their story, their old story, what could be their new story. This happens to you. Similar circumstances, something like that's happened to many people in their lives, but that didn't end up becoming what this became for you. How does someone take control of the meaning of an event like that? Because I believe that too. It's not the event that happens. It's the meaning you attach to it and then what you do about it. Could you give them any insight as to how do you, I mean, did that naturally happen for you, do you think? Or, or, or now no. in hindsight, how does someone attach the right meaning to something? I, I, think it, I think what it came from is I just saw how much pain the opposite insights had. You know, thinking that no one gives a damn, which my dad said daily probably, mm. no one gives a shit about us was his exact language. Yeah. And hearing that over and over again and seeing the anger in him and the resentment in him. And then when the food came that day and seeing him enraged as opposed to grateful, it just struck me so hard. And so I think, we, you know, in a grateful place, you ask, ask different questions, you answer questions in a different way. You know, it's, you know, Ed, you know my work. I, everything in my work starts with the most basic fundamental, which is if you want to change your life, you have to change your state. Yep. That, you know, when you're in peak state, you're going to have peak performance. When you're in a crappy state, I don't care how smart you are, you're not going to perform at the same level. Yep. And whether it's perform or whether it's enjoy your life, you can't enjoy your life when you're at these low energy states that most people live in. I think, Everyone has an emotional home, a set of emotions 
that they know better than any others, and they find a way to get back to it. Gosh, when 9-11 happened, I was in Hawaii, and I had, you know, 2,500 people from 65 countries uh, and probably 65 or 70 people that worked in the World Trade Center who literally that day, all their friends and family, or all their friends and coworkers rather, died. Mm. And it happened on my watch when we're all together with these people. And what I got to witness was angry people got angry, sad people got sad, worriers worried. Some people felt guilty because they weren't there. But it's the same pattern of emotion that people have every day of their life. Mm -hmm. We find a way, we use events to get back to what we know. And a lot of us, if you, you use the metaphor physically, if I were to say to you, you know, I sometimes I'll ask an audience, I'll say, you know, Ed, uh, you know, have you ever seen these people in, let's say, you know, certain parts of the country, every two, three years, a storm comes by and wipes out their house with cyclone <laughs> or New Orleans or something, you know, and you think to yourself, move, move, why the hell haven't you moved? And we can all, we all can figure that out when it's not us. Right. But when it's your emotional home, it's more invisible to us. We don't realize it doesn't know how much money you make. It doesn't know how many people, how many beautiful children you have. It doesn't matter how great your relationship is. Mm. People go back to what they know. And so what we have to do is upgrade your new home, upgrade where you live psychologically or emotionally in a totally different way. And that's really become a big focus of my life, as well as just skill sets to master whatever it is you want, your business, your finances, or any area of your life, your physical body that matters to you. That's so huge. Because we do, we get the emotion that we seek that we're commonly home at. My, I have a mother-in-law who's the most godly, good Christian woman, Christiana's mom, Patricia. And I'm just, no matter what's going on, she sees the Lord in it. You know, it's such a beautiful thing. That. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's raining. Oh, the Lord is cooling us off. You know, whatever it is, she sees the Lord in it. And so, and, but, but also she sees the Lord and, and she creates joy. And you look at people, right. there are people that, we all know people that can walk in the building and suck the oxygen out of the building so by true. their presence because so they're always in such a crappy place. And then we all know people that like, like her that are just so uplifted and isn't bullshit. It's how they really live. And it's the only difference is they have a different pattern of what they focus on. I mean, if, you know, every moment of our life, we're deciding what to focus on, but most of us decided unconsciously. And if you focus on, you know, what's missing, I mean, I'll give you three patterns for your listeners. Okay. Ask yourself, if you're listening to us right now, do you want to see the power of just your unconscious decisions? And if you make them conscious, how you could change your life, take one of those three decisions, focus. There's three patterns of focus you could look at. Which is your tendency? With that, I know what yours is going to be, but I want your audience to answer for themselves. Do you tend to focus more on what you have or what's missing? And when I ask that of audiences all over the world, and you know, I usually go each year to about 15 to 18 countries, I can tell you that 75% of people will say, somewhere between 60 and 75 will say, that they focus more on what's missing. Of course, and while yep, that might do. be useful to make yourself grow or look at things, yep. if you're constantly looking at what's missing, there's no way you can ever be happy no matter how much you achieve. No gratitude. Now you focus on what you have and you're grateful, yep. from that place you can achieve anything because you're not empty, you're not weak, you have an energy. Another question is, do you tend to focus on what you can control or what you can't control? Mm. Now most of my audiences are about controlling, that's why they came to the seminar, they wanna take control of their lives, so I usually get a higher ratio there, maybe 80% control, 20% what I can't control. But when you combine two of these, let's say the pattern that you've had, everybody does both, but we have a predominant pattern. If the pattern is what's missing all the time and what I can't control, you're going to be angry, sad, or depressed. And it's going to, I don't care how many drugs they give you. I ask people all the time in a seminar, I'll say, how many of you know someone who takes antidepressants and they're still depressed? <laughs> and you'll see 98% of the room, and I'm talking about all over the world, London, Australia, you know, anywhere I go, people are raising their hand go, these people, everybody I know, I, got, I know somebody is totally addicted to all these antidepressants. They're still depressed because they haven't dealt with the power of the meanings they've made up, what they focus on. And if the meaning you make up is I'm being screwed over or it never works for me or it's not worth it, the meanings produce the emotions of our life. If they're derogatory meanings, destructive meanings, you're going to have a destroyed emotional life. And then all of a sudden your actions come out of that. So just changing the pattern of what you focus on to what you can control versus what you can't mm -hmm. to what you have and being grateful for it. And then you can build on that and notice what's not there and handle it. But it doesn't mean your, your primary focus is what's missing. And another one is, do you focus more on the past, the present or the future? Most people are focused on the future if they're achievers. Yep. People that are really having pain tend to focus on the past. People in the present tend to have some joy but don't always accomplish. And so there's no right or wrong, but learning how to use the past where it's very little bit of your time, the present so you can be fulfilled, and the future so you can anticipate and create what you want, learning how to navigate these three patterns by themselves can change a person's entire life. Oh, my gosh. That's so true. I was thinking about me. <laughs> I think I'm like a lot of achievers. 
when you just said that last piece, two things. One, I think there's a subtle distinction, I think you'd agree, between trying to feel in control but yet still taking charge. I think champions take charge. They're not obsessed with being control. There's a distinction there. The second thing is, is that you said it's just it's people listening to this that are achievers, they're nodding. I think I struggle. I'm curious if you ever do. I struggle with being in the present sometimes. In other words, I think like most achievers, I don't spend a whole lot of time on the past. And I am yeah. in the future a lot. Do, do you find yeah. that that the 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 achievers that are not constantly feeling fulfilled oftentimes are just so projected into the future that they forget to be I think I struggle with that. I'm not I don't struggle with it chronically, but I think no, that I that's that. a pattern. Do you, do you agree with that that I think sometimes for the achievers make sure that they're attempting to direct their focus to the present more often? True or false? I don't yeah. know. There, there's absolutely true. I really believe there's two master lessons if you want an extraordinary life. And when I say extraordinary life, I mean life on your terms, not somebody else's terms, not my idea, not Ed's idea, your idea of your life. And that's the first skill is really the science of achievement, mastering that skill so that you can take whatever you envision and make it real. That's the achiever's skill set. You have it, I have it, you know, the people we hang with and the people I teach usually have it. Some people don't realize how strong they have it because almost all of us have something in our life that at one point seemed like a dream or it seemed impossible, and now it's in your life, whether it's a business or an income level or a relationship or children or you know something that you've always dreamed of that you've manifested. And what I tend to do is show people, let's figure out how you do that, and let's show you then how you can use the same exact formula right. to achieve what you want at the next level today, because people forget what they're capable of. But I believe that the science of achievement, and you know, it is a science. Like, what does it take to make money? There are rules. If you violate them, I don't give a damn who you are. You're going to have too much month at the end of your money. You're going to have financial pressure. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, if you align with them, there's nobody that can't become wealthy. I've, I've taken the principles I learned when I, I went to write this book, Money Master the Game, because I was angry. I was angry at seeing so many people being taken advantage of in the marketplace and especially by the financial industry. And I decided I'm going to write a book which became 760 or 670 pages. It's a big book. But yeah. I want to write this definitive book. It became number one New York Times bestseller. I mean, literally, uh, you know, I give you an idea. Steve Forbes said if there, was a, if there was a Pulitzer Prize for an investment book, this would win hands down. I mean, mm-hmm. I wrote this book with a level of fervor. But the fervor was I'm going to go interview 50 of the smartest financial people on the earth. Warren Buffett, Ray Dalio, Carl Icahn, on and on, the, the best of the best. I'm going to find out they're all different. What do they have in common? And how do I make that simple enough so that people can actually act on it? Mm-hmm. So once you know it and apply it, I mean, I've applied those things in the last five or six years. I think you know I've taken a bunch of my little $100 million companies. I'm now doing $5 billion. We're going to hit $6 billion this year mm-hmm. amongst my 31 companies. And it's all from applying the very principles I've learned there. So it's a science. Your body's a science. But the second master lesson is more important, and it sounds boring as hell. And that's you've got to master the art of fulfillment. Because if you've got all this incredible achievement, but you're not fulfilled, then you have nothing. I always tell people success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. And the example I give is, is I've asked this question around the world for about a year now. So I've asked this given in Beijing, China. I've asked it in Tokyo, Japan. I've asked it in Sydney. I've asked it in London. I've asked it in Peru. I mean, literally South America, North America, all around the earth in Asia. I've asked the question, South Pacific. And the question is, I said, you know, there's a man, there's a, what I consider to be a, a national treasure in the United States was Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And I said, we lost him two and a half years ago. And I ask people, I say, how many of you think this guy was an overachiever? And, you know, everybody raises his hand. Sure. The first thing I do is ask people, I say, how many of you love this man? Don't raise your hand if you liked him, only if you loved him. And like all over the earth, so true. 98% of the people raise their hand and say they love this guy. And they go, okay, was he an overachiever? Did He went to Hollywood, said, I'm going to have my own show. He did it. He said, I'm going to have the number one show. He did it. He said, I'm going to make more money than I could ever spend. He did it. He said, I'm going to have the most perfect family. He did it. Then he said, I want to make movies. Then he said, I want to win an Academy Award for not being funny. His number one skill. And he did it. But then he hung himself in his own home, leaving his family scarred for life and hundreds of millions of people loving him. So it doesn't matter how many people love you. It doesn't matter how great your life is. If you don't master fulfillment, then what life is is just stress. Life is just suffering with moments where you pop out of it because things go your way. But if the only time you're happy is when things go your way and people do what you want them to do, you're not going to stay happy very long. So mm. the last part of my newest book, Unshakable, I wrote this book, Unshakable, because I wanted to give people a way to protect themselves because we're nine months and nine, nine years and three months into this bull market and yeah. only other bull market this long in the history of the United States went nine and a half years. 
and there's going to be a crash. I mean, it's not, this is not a big deal. It's not something to be surprised by, but I want to make sure people know how to take advantage of that crash because crashes are the greatest opportunity for people to leapfrog from where they are to where they want to be. Like you're a baby boomer and you started way late and you think you'll never be free. If you understand what's happening with the crash coming and you take advantage of it, you'll be able to make more money in the shortest period of time than you've done in your entire investing career or if you've never had an investing career. Or I, I, I find millennials right now that think they'll never be out of student debt, right? They're just completely at the top of their head going, there's just no way. And there is a way. When they, when they understand the fundamentals and the fear disappears because you understand the truth, everything shifts. So that allows people not only achieve more, but also be fulfilled. And my last chapter in the whole book is, how do you really experience the quality of life that you want long-term forever, even when it doesn't go your way, even when people are unjust, even when you're Dreams don't come true in the short term. I always tell people, you know, what, most people overestimate what they can do in a year. Mm-hmm. And they underestimate what they can do in a decade or two or three. And those decades, as you and I both know, Ed, they come quick. Right. <laughs> you snap your fingers. You know, 10 years from now, we'll surely arrive, as Jim Rohn used to say. The question is, where will you be when it arrives? It. And so I'm trying to help people make sure they're where they really want to be in the future and that they're enjoying their present fully. Yeah, uh, you reach all kinds of people. I want to talk about this book for a second. Let's I, More than a second, but... The first book was outstanding. It was a big book, though. And I, when you wrote it, I told you it's outstanding. But in the back of my mind, I thought, this is a, lo- this is a big read, though. There's a lot to take in here because yeah, there was just so sure. much to cover. It was, a, it was an incredible book. You sold millions and millions of copies. This new one I love, Unshakable, and there's probably three people left in the world who haven't bought it yet based on the numbers. <laughs> but for those three people, I want you to talk a few minutes about this because people have said to me, wow, it seems like Tony's sort of remaking himself. And I thought to myself, no, it's not really. This is an extension of what he's always done. This is a way to serve people. This is a way to change their life. This is a way to make an impact, the highest version of themselves, and to change their identity. The book's so powerful because I love so much of it, particularly the stuff as you talk about compound interest and fees, and I want to talk some specifics there if we can. But what I sure. love is, as you know, I'm in the financial world as well, and you know, I, I, several hundred thousand of our clients have the book. But beyond that, I was telling you the other day, it reaches everybody because I'm playing golf at one of the clubs you and I belong to, and I'm playing with a guy who's an NFL quarterback and a very successful young man. And as we go by your house, he says, I just finished Robin's new book, Unshakable. And I thought, this reaches lit because he's got access to the best financial people he probably thinks he can get access to, yet he was impacted by the book. And he was quoting to me, Tony, specific things from the book. It wasn't like he skimmed it. I mean, he was deep in this book, highlighting it, like I think most people should be. But why did you do it? So you had the first book, and then you decided to come out with this one, which has even been more successful. My favorite thing, by the way, is that I think all the proceeds go to Feeding America. Maybe you can touch on that if I'm wrong, correct me. But, no, that's true. No, but, both books 100% go to it. That's, you know, I, I, that's how I fed 350 million people. But I've, in addition, I've obviously written some other big checks. Some checks. 100% yeah. of the money from both books goes to feed people. But yeah, no, I wrote the second book, as I said, because I want to protect people because the timing is there. I wrote the first book and anybody that wants to go, I want to write a book that a billionaire client of mine could read yeah. and go, holy shit, this is amazing. Yep. And the average guy that isn't even started the journey could do it. And I did that successfully. That's why I was so successful. But then I thought... I really want a book that when the things crash, yep. tell people what to do in advance and how to protect themselves. And what made me write that book besides the timing, you know, hearing all the fear starting to build up was really I had a I do a program once a year for my platinum partners, a group of my biggest uh, supporters from my foundation. And I bring in usually six billionaires. I bring in some of the top financial people that exist on the planet. We spend a week together and say, here's how to protect yourself. Here's how to maximize. Here's what the greatest opportunities are in the world. And I brought in the former Fed chair, Alan Greenspan, you know, a total legend who, you know, almost 20 years was basically the most powerful man in finance in the world. And so we spent, I spent about two and a half hours with him, you know, off camera at lunch, privately digging into his psyche. And then I brought him on stage for two hours. And at the end of it, we talked about everything, these negative interest rates, you know, things that have never existed in the history of the financial world that we're facing right now. And, and when it was all there, I said, so, okay, you're back. You're made the head of the Fed again tomorrow. What's your first action? Hmm. And we all leaned in to hear what he's going to say. And he paused for a moment. He looked at me and smiled. And he said, resign. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I, you know, I, I had this uh, conversation with the guys from Oak Tree, from the gentleman there. You know, he was investing yes. half a billion dollars a week during the middle of the crisis, you know, in hmm. 2009, 2008, 2009. And, uh, and, and he was saying, Tony, if you're not confused by what's going on right now, you don't know what's going on. And so hmm. it made me realize I need to write a short book 
that people go through literally in a few hours or a weekend and give them a playbook. Here's exactly what to do. You don't have to know every detail. Here's what you need to do. And here's how to set up a system so that you can literally do this once a year, twice a year max, or maybe an, after, you, after you set it up, maybe half an hour, an hour. And here's what the best people on the face of the earth have to say. This is not what I believe. None of these, either of these books, Money Master the Game or Unshakable, none of it is my point of view. It is all directly from the greatest financial investors in the history of the world, quite without exaggeration. And then I add to it the psychology of how to get yourself to follow through because I always believe that the more complex you make things, complexity is the enemy of execution. Most people don't follow through because they make it too complex. My entire focus in this book was make it simple so people could get a plan and get started and make it happen. And I tell people, look, I don't make a dime off this book. You cannot afford not to read this book and know how to protect yourself, minimum, much less to take advantage because the opportunity of a lifetime is coming. I've been in the industry 20 years. I've not read a book like it. I want you to point to one part of it that, for me, it's kind of the secret of the industry, right? Nobody talks about it. Talk a second about, because you cover this in some real detail, about compound interest, but also how the slightest amount of fees and or especially taxes, too, can just erode the nest egg that you could potentially build. How does talk just about that for because no one wants to talk about that in most financial books because they're written from people in the industry, right? So it's kind of a exactly secret. Right. So, exactly so talk, right. talk about that for a second. Uh, fees and taxes as it relates to compounding your money. Both those things. Just real quick if you would. Well I'll I'll give you a fact that, just, yeah. that I put in the book that just startled me personally. Another reason why I wrote the book. There's an organization I'm sure you're familiar with called Dalbar. Dalbar is one of the you know, smart organizations that does research on the financial industry as a whole. And they did some really simple research from 1985 to 2015. They you know, found out the S&P 500 over that 30-year period of time it had an average annual compounding of 10.28%, which is phenomenal, as you know, because it means you double your money basically every seven years. So if you put 50000 bucks in in 1985, and that was it, and you never touched it, you didn't add anything to it, it's worth just less just under a million bucks today, 941613 bucks to be exact. But if you saw what the average person got, that's what the market got. That's what you did if you just bought the index. You didn't have any big fees, nothing of that nature. But the average American, or the average investor made 3.2. Now, at 3.2, it's going to take you, or 3.6, I'm sorry, 3.6, it makes you double every 20 years. So now, instead of that 50000 being worth just under a million, it's worth $146,000. Same exact money, same exact everything. What's the difference? Why are people getting so little? One of those pieces is fees. The other part is trading in and out of the market, thinking that somehow you're going to time the market yeah. and you're going to do something that even Warren Buffett can't do. Listen, I interviewed the smartest people literally in the world, and there are a few unicorns. Ray Dalio is the man who... 23 years has averaged 23% before fees compounded over that time. You know, to give you an idea, Carl Icahn, most people think of Carl as this really intense character, and he is. I mean, I went to go see him, and he says, uh, I said, uh, we're ready for the interview. And he goes, uh, no video cameras. I said, you, you approved him. He goes, I changed my mind. I said, okay, audio team. He goes, no audio. No audio. What am I supposed to do? He, goes, he said, bring a paper and pencil, kid. You got five minutes. Right? So, you know, fortunately, four hours later, three and a half hours later, I got him to open up, got him to do everything, got the insights in him. But Carl, like, he was on the cover of Time Magazine a few years ago called a master of the universe. Everybody thinks of Warren Buffett, who I also interviewed, as the most incredible investor of all time. He's the best and most articulate one. But Warren has averaged 20% compounded since 1968. That's inhuman. It's incredible. <laughs> it's like nobody else on the planet, except Carl has averaged 28% compounded wow. since 1968. Wow. So I got a chance to meet with these people and uncover really what's going on with them. But what they all talked to me about was fees. Because what they all said, you know, probably the best in that was Jack Bogle, you know, who started Vanguard, now doing $3 trillion. And Jack said, look, Tony, if a person puts their money in the market, and they can compound it. The average compounding over the long term in the market has been 8%. 10% last 30 years, but 8% last 20, 8% on average. He said, if you just left it in there, he said, what's interesting is, you know, the fees you're paying, you know, you think you're paying are 1%. So let's say you're compounding at 7%. He says, you're that $1, every dollar you invest. Everyone hear me on this. Every dollar you invest, at the end of 50 years of investing, that'd be worth $30. That's the power of compounding. One becomes 30. So if you had a million, it's 30 million. If you had 100,000, you get the picture. And he said, the only problem is, he said, that's not what people net, which is what Dalbar showed. He said, he said, let's just pretend they, they're only paying 2% in fees. 
when Forbes shows that the average fee for the average mutual fund is 3.12%, you think it's 1%, but there's 17 other hidden fees in there that I document in the book that just blow your mind. You think you're paying nothing and you're paying all this money. And people hear 1%, 3%, what's the difference? He said, Tony, when all of a sudden you take it down to 3%, your $1 doesn't become 30, it becomes 10. Wow. So two thirds of the money goes away because of the fee structures. Mm. He said, it's just completely insane. It's your money. You're taking the risk, you're putting it all up, and somebody else who's getting poor returns, because these people don't match the market, and almost everybody puts their money in mutual funds, and 96% of all mutual funds over any 10-year period fail, I repeat, fail to match the market. That's right. If you play blackjack, and you're an idiot, and you know you can't break 21 or you lose, and you get two face cards worth 20, and your inner idiot says, I'm feeling lucky, hit me. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got an 8% chance of getting an ace. You've got a 4% chance of getting the right mutual fund. Right? That's going to make you money. So the bottom line is these fees destroy us. I'll give you one more example. If you, I'll make it a simpler math. If, you, if a person's 35 years old, let's say they've accumulated through a variety of elements, their business, real estate, whatever, $100,000, and they invest in the market, and again, they get the average 8% return, at 65, if they've never had a dime in, at 65 years old, at the normal fee structure, which is 3%, you end up with $432,000. And that sounds great, man. My 100 grand would turn up 432000 That's pretty cool. But if you paid only 1% in fees or less, but 1%, it's $761,000. Mm. It's almost twice as much money. Mm. I mean, it's, it's insane. We live in a world where the financial industry, they're not bad people. They're all doing what they're trained to do. They're corporations, they're big corporations, and their job is to maximize shareholder value. Well, you're not a shareholder, you're a client. And the way they make money off clients is have as many fees as possible. And quite frankly, they need to be hidden fees because if you really knew what's going on, when people read my book, the first reaction most people get is angry. That's right. And then first they're shocked, then they're angry, then they go take control and they get it back. I've had people turn around I mean, look at, look at people's, uh, where most people in America have their money, not wealthy people, but the average person has their money, not in real estate, not in a home. Most people have it in a 401k, mm -hmm. but the average 401k is just bleeding someone dry. I brought in a company, I'm partners in the company, I was called America's Best 401k, but I found out that when I started looking through the fees, that I could bring in a company, they evaluated the company, they showed me how to get all the same exact stocks available to my employees. But they literally wiped out two-thirds of the fees. So we put $5 million in just one of my company's employees' pockets, and they all have the same product they had before. It's like, do you want to own a, you know, you want to have a Honda Accord and pay $30,000 for it? Would you like to pay a million dollars for the same car? There are people living next door to each other that are paying 3% when you could be paying 0.25% for all the investments you have, for example, in your 401k. It's, wow. it's literally highway robbery. But because people don't understand what's going on, they're taken advantage of. And so who gets rich? The broker gets rich. Who gets, you know, who's looking at their bank balance going, why am I ever going to be financially free? The average person is getting screwed over. That's what I wrote this book to change. That's awesome. Because I think we're going to look back in five, eight, maybe 10 years. We're going to look back at this. This is the time, your book being one of the catalysts too, where the kind of traditional financial, all the, some of the new regulatory stuff, stuff like your book, the new product designs, this, it's a complete transformation of that industry. I don't think, I'm not even so sure the industry as it is now will exist in five or 10 years. I think it's, I was just reading about Jamie Dimon and some of the things that he's trying to do. I, mean, I think the whole thing's going to shift. So, I'm excited. I think so too. And I really Mary, want to... Mary Callahan Erdos and, and Jamie are friends, both for me. And Mary Callahan, you know, runs that business, JP Morgan's financial business. She manages two trillion with a T. And listening to them, they know how antiquated the system is. So I, I think you're right, it's gonna change, but I think it's gonna be no matter what you do, it's still gonna take a while. And meanwhile, you don't want to wait and hope it changes. By the way, the proof of the industry the last fifty years is to look at how people retire. If people leave your seminar and 99% of them, we went back five years later, there was no material change in their life, then what you're doing doesn't work. And in, exactly. and in, the, industry, in the industry, if you look at the last 50 years and how people retire, 85% of them dependent on their Social Security check, we know what the industry's been doing doesn't work. And those are the reasons why it doesn't work. So, well, but, it works for the industry. It works for the industry, <laughs> They're doing very well. Yeah. They got the, you know, like the old phrase, where is the, the broker comes to mind and shows you his yacht? You go, where are your customer's yacht? That's pretty good. Okay, I have to be respectful of your time, so we're going to cover a couple more things, and I need to let you go. Okay. So the I want to talk about people's lives now as it relates. So we've talked about their money, and uh, this is interesting, but in life, what people are trying to do is really compound their life. 
And the fees of life, oftentimes, the taxes of life are these limiting beliefs that people have or their lack of identity or what they associate pain and pleasure to. That's, it's the fee that stops the compounding in people's lives. And so I know you, and what struck me lately is just how big your life is, how busy you are, and what you get done. You know, you're, you're, you're probably the busiest person I've interacted with. And yet earlier you said complexity is the enemy of execution, which I completely agree with. And I'm just wondering, how do you, your endurance, your capacity to do so much, even right now, the energy you bring to this, I'm curious, are you a, are you a list maker? Are you a real structured guy? If, take people through, if you could just briefly, what does your day look like, if you could? I know no day's typical, but do you start your day the same way, finish it the same way? Just real quickly, what is a, what is a guy like you, and there aren't that many, who have all these things going on. And I think a single mother could be listening to this saying, I have a lot going on. I've got to raise my kids. Without I've got doubt. my job. I've got my family. I've got church. You know, how do I hold it all together? So what do you do and give them some insight? I think the first thing it's got to start with is energy. If you don't have energy and if you don't build and strengthen and take care of, condition, a high level of energy in your body, you're not going to accomplish squat because you know, whether you, if you just, you want passion in a relationship, you have two people totally love each other, but if they're exhausted all the time, and go, oh, I got two jobs and five kids, and how do I pull this off? The mindset is it's all the responsibilities that are keeping my energy down, but the reality is it's a habit. It's the habit of how you think, because, you know, you can think a thought and have your energy go through the roof, and you can think a thought and take it through the floor. Now, I do the physical things to support my body. I start every day with what I call my three to thrive, or or my, my priming exercise, which is I go outside and I do a form of meditation. It's the very first thing I do. I go hot water. I go freezing ass water. I have a, in all my homes, I'm fortunate enough, except one where I have a river that I use instead, mm-hmm. I have cold plunges. And so I jump in and I, I go to 56 degrees and two seconds flat. And I don't do it just to, to make the, the benefit to my body in terms of the lymph and the organs and all the things that it does because the blood just flushes your system so fast. But I also do it as a discipline. It's like I don't feel like it. But it's, I'm not there to negotiate with myself. I don't negotiate with my mind. That sucks energy away. When you're fighting with yourself, should I do it or not do it? It's just like it's done. This is what I do. I get up there and I do it, and it's a discipline. And when you do that in one area of your life and you really discipline yourself, it becomes easier to discipline yourself in other areas. And my, my teacher, Jim Rohn, used to always say there's two pains in life. There's the pain of discipline or there's the pain of regret. And I'm not into regret. So I, I, I have those things to build my physical energy. Mm. Then there's the psychological and emotional side. It's like your goals affect you, whatever they are. You know, if your goal is to just take care of yourself, you'll get a certain level of insight because you're part of life. Life supports all of life. But if you're trying to support your family, you know, when I suddenly had three children overnight and one on the way, and I was 24 and had a 17-year-old son because I married a woman who's 13 years my senior, and she'd been married twice, got kids from both pieces. I mean, I had to grow pretty damn quickly. I got a different level of insight. When I wanted to change my community, when I, you know, corny as it sounds, change the world, you get different insights. I've, I've learned things. I've come up with things that come because, and there's an energy based on what it is. When I decided I want to feed a billion people, it made me crazy. That got me more excited than any plane or train or helicopter or, or island or any other shit I've ever done. It just, for me, that was my hot button. It's like, okay, this this is, a, this is a worthy opponent. This is something to accomplish in your life that would be extraordinary on top of the other things that you're doing in your life. So your goals give you energy. Your body gives you energy if you do things as a regular component. I start my mornings. I started to tell you, and I do a, a little 12, 10, 12-minute 12 exercise. I say 10, but I usually go longer, and all I do is I do an explosive breathing pattern, in and out, breath of fire, if you know the yogic breath of fire. Yes. And, and I do that to just radically change my, my emotional state. You know, it's like... If you want to change your mind, change your breath. Breath is like, you know, the string on a kite. You change the breath, you pull on the string, and you'll change how the mind works. So I do this quick little breathing exercise, and then I do 10 minutes roughly, three and a third minutes where I focus on three things I'm grateful for, and I really, I don't just think of it intellectually. I, like, you know, you can think about the time you rode the roller coaster, and you can think about it in the distance, or you can remember looking in front of you going over the edge of the roller coaster. So I put myself over the edge where that gratitude is. I feel it. And I pick three things, and I pick one that's really simple, the wind on my face, my, mm. the smile on one of my kids' faces, something simple so that I'm making sure that I'm cherishing even the smallest things, not just the big things. Mm. Then I do three and a third minutes of prayer and blessings where I ask that my body be healed, be strengthened, that the best of me becomes stronger every single moment, whether it be my love or my gratitude or my drive or my hunger or my commitment to serve. 
And then I take that energy and then I see it like a loop coming from me out to my children, my family, my clients, my businesses, my owners. And then, and then the third last three, three minutes and a third is me thinking of what I call three to thrive. What are the three things that are most important that I really want to focus and accomplish, but I don't focus on accomplishing them. I see them as done. I experience the victory of it. I get my nervous system to kind of jump as if it's already done because I've found that if you get your brain to believe it, it happens. So are I those short, or Tony, are those short-term things? Are they things for that day or are they? No, usually they're things for 90 days, six months or a year and I mix it up so I'm never bored. So I might do, tomorrow I might do the, for the year or the next day I might do for the next 90 days, but they all support one another. And it makes, so that I'm done with this, I'm pumped because I'm full of gratitude and the beauty of gratitude, as corny as it sounds, is that when you're grateful, you're not angry. And when you're grateful, you're not fearful. And fear and anger are what mess up, screw up most people's lives more than anything else. So when you make it a discipline where it's a habit and you're doing it every day, it sets you up. And then the last thing to answer your question, no, I'm not into lists because there's no effing way. If I made a list of all I have to do (laughs) and just made that list, I'd be completely screwed. So I I have a system called RPM that I created for myself 30 years ago, 25 years ago. I I went to a time management class and I was making these lists and I was always angry with myself because I could never get it all done. I was like, wait a second. I don't give a damn about the activity. I need to give a damn about the outcome. So what's the result I'm after? I need to be completely focused. When I meet with my teams and all my companies, all I do is I come in and say, okay, tell me the outcomes of this meeting. What are the results we're after? What's the purpose of this meeting? Why do we want it? What are we after? Why do we want it? So RPM, what's the result? What's the purpose? Because purpose is more powerful than object. You might say, I want to make a billion dollars. Well, that's nice, but what are you going to do with it? No, I'm going I'm to buy a home for my family. I'm going I'm to you know, create this island. I'm going to feed a billion people. The Y gives you the energy. And then the, the M in RPM is massive action plan. So I make a map, massive action plan. I write down anything that I think get me to that target faster, quicker, better. And then I say, okay, 80% of this is not going to get done. What's the 20% that will get me 80% of the result? And I focus on that, and then I find how to leverage things. I don't delegate. Delegation is I say to you, okay, take this over. You're in charge of this. And then when it's time to have it delivered, I show up, and you didn't do it, and I'm mad. That's stupid. I leverage. Leverage is like if I want to lift a boulder, I can do it with a lever. You're my lever. So in order to make that work, i got to stay connected with you. i got to get you to be clear. This is the outcome. This is why it's important to you and me and get buy-in. And then you can tell me what's the map. You can tell me what's the best way to get there. I can give you a couple ideas, but then you're free to find a better way to achieve it than I would come up with. And that's why I think I've been a bolt of my, my company. So I, I come up with a set of outcomes for the day, and I know why I'm doing them, which give me the energy and juice. And then I've got a map of what I think it's going to take to get there. But I look through that map, and I come up with new ways. Because otherwise, you're busy. You, know, you mistake movement for achievement. You may mistake crossing off your to-do list Doing all the to do's, it's like, uh, you, know, President, um, you know, President Clinton called me one day and said, Tony, they're going to impeach me in the morning. What should I do? Mm. <laughs> I was like, could you have called me sooner? It was the first thing he said. <laughs> right. It was the morning. I mean, what the hell, right? <laughs> and so I asked him, I said, you know, he says, what should I do? I said, it's the wrong question. The first question is, what do you want? Because mm. you ask what to do, that might be asked based on what do I do so I get out of this? What do I do so I survive this? What do I do so that I can feel good about myself? Is your goal to have respect, you know, moms still respect you and kids be able to respect you? Is your goal to change society? Is your goal to get by with something? Whatever your goal is, once you know your outcome and why you want it, you'll come up with a different action list. And he and I together came up with a different way of approaching things based on what he really wanted to achieve versus just what should I do? What should you do? You might just do what's urgent if you ask what should I do? Or you might do what other people want you to do as opposed to what's most important. So mm. I have an actual system that I use for all my companies. It's, it's a visual system because the picture's worth a thousand words. And I can tell, say a thousand words as you notice in a few moments here. It's <laughs> awesome. But having a visual picture of my day really helps me. And so when things change, I go back to what's the outcomes. I don't have to do the actions, all of them. What are the outcomes? There is a better way to, I can still get to that outcome and I get to throw away the to-do list rather than have that thing, you know, make me feel bad or, or think I got to try and accomplish everything on the to-do list, which is not true. What's awesome. I just occurred to me, I want everybody to hear this and we're going to wrap up here in just a couple minutes, but I was just thinking through when you were talking, and I don't say this to stroke you, you know that, so many of the things that I do in my life now unconsciously I've learned from you. And people ask me all the time if there's different things I recommend they do. It's always, I find myself always recommending either the RPM method or to go to Unleash the Power Within weekend or to the best 
week of my life other than my children being born was date with destiny and so i just encourage everybody tony's not a motivator even though you're feeling motivated in, in, any more than i am he has real tools real strategies that impact people's lives specifically yours and so sincerely i mean that people i hope that you'll take an opportunity give yourself the gift of getting some of this content information and a lot more specificity than we can do here in the few minutes three rapid questions to finish boom 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 for you Sure. When I play, uh, I just had this happen again yesterday. I played golf with some guys who have listened to me speak, and I bet this happens for you sometimes too, but th- some people can say the oddest things to you, you know, and I often hear once they're with me for an hour or two, they go, oh, you're like human. <laughs> you're not, you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I bet you hear it 3,000 times more than me. You're not a robot, you know, and what I think they mean by that is like, oh, you, you have tons of faults and flaws and you make mistakes and you're not always on, you know. And I, I often think, I wonder if sometimes I'm not conscious enough of making people know my vulnerabilities and weaknesses as a person like anybody. In your case, sure. I think people would love to know, do you get down? Do you doubt yourself? Do you go through periods of you're depressed or bummed out? And or do, you, do you not let it last a long time? Does, does Tony Robbins experience the same fears and anxieties that I do? Well, I think everybody has different homes emotionally, right? So mine isn't fear and anxiety, but mine would be anger and frustration if I let it, right? So uh, because I have super high expectations, I'm, I'm on a mission, I'm driven like a crazy person. And so I used to get angry. All I had to do was have my phone nearby because, you know, <laughs> when you got 1,200 employees across 31 companies and now it's almost eight different industries, what are the chances somebody's effing up right now? If effing up <laughs> is doing something I think they shouldn't, right. with that many moving parts, it's you know, like pretty much guaranteed somebody's doing something, right? So I get all the good news and not the so good news. And so I'd, be, I'd let my phone manage my state. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny people ask that question. I, I, one time when I actually learned to play golf, I was 40, and uh, these guys came to teach me, two guys. And my wife was telling me, like, we went out and played golf for a couple of days, and, and I was learning the game and enjoying it. And, and my wife said, you know, Tony's going to be teaching Date with Destiny in a couple of days. And she said, you know, I'd invited them. And, you know, they were like, oh, I'd like to go to a seminar, but they didn't know what a seminar was. Mm-hmm. Their idea of a seminar is what most people's idea of a seminar is, a boring-ass thing where you sit on your ass forever. Right. Nothing like what we do. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. You're going to meet a different human when you meet Tony there. And mm. I'm like, honey, what are you talking about? And I'm, yeah. I'll never forget, these guys came up to me like an hour into it, and the, you know, during a stretch break, and they was like, oh, my God, that's <laughs> the same thing I've ever seen in my life. Right. So I do understand that, that com- comment that you're talking mm. about. But for me, I give myself a 90-second rule. It's really simple. If mm. I start to feel stress, you know, life is too short to suffer. So my, I made that decision a couple of years ago, and I just said, it didn't matter how much money people had. It doesn't matter how much joy they have, how much love they have. It doesn't matter how many great family members they have. People still find a way to suffer, right? Because mm. there's no relationship between problems and happiness. You can have huge problems and be happy as you can possibly be. Mm. I've had one of the roughest years of my life physically the last year from everything from mercury poisoning. Jeez. You know, I had a level that was the highest they measured in the United States. You know, on a year to five scale, I was 123. Oh. They said, how long has he been in the hospital? And I just got off stage for four days wow. and nights. Um, I've had, you know, sleep apnea where I can only get two hours a night sleep. I tore rotator cuffs. I had spinal stenosis. I mean, I've had one of the roughest <laughs> years. And yet That's I, unbelievable. But I, I mean, while, I, while I traveled to 15 countries and ran 31 companies, <laughs> and I honestly, though, more importantly, I had the best year of my life in terms of enjoyment because I've learned to discipline my disappointment. I learned to wow. really put myself in a place that says, in 90 seconds, if I start to feel stress, life is way too short to live in that state. And so I change my state by focusing on what I can control, what I can contribute, what I am grateful for. You know, you, you can flip from... Everybody suffers when they go to three words, loss, less, or never. If you think, mm. oh, my God, because of something Ed did or I did or someone else did or didn't do that they should have done, and now I've lost money, time, energy, respect, anything you value, then you're going to suffer. And if you think you're going to have less of it because of something you did or failed to do or someone else did, you're going to suffer. Or if you think that you'll never again have the love that you want, the money you have, the opportunity you have, the time you want, anytime you go to loss, less, never, you suffer, and you can... Get out of that suffering in less than 90 seconds just by breathing in your heart, as simplistic as that sounds. A change in breath, once again, changes the mind. And the only reason you're stressed is because you have some thought, some stressful thought you're believing in. You're thinking it'll never be good again. You'll never get there. I'm never going to achieve it. It's all bullshit because there's another opportunity around the corner always. So I focus immediately. 
I change my breath, I breathe slowly for two minutes, I focus on my heart and that heart energy, as simplistic as it sounds, science shows that when you focus on your heart for two minutes and you think about things you're grateful for, your brain waves and your heart waves, your EEG and your EKG literally become aligned and you go in that flow state that everybody talks about. So I do that and I focus on something to appreciate because it's too big a jump to go from pissed off to like, you know, excited. It doesn't go yeah. like that. I go from pissed off to what can I appreciate? What am I missing right now? What, what can I be grateful for? And the minute I get in that state, now I can start to go to enjoyment. And my goal is really simple. You know, you know, I'm not a billionaire yet, but I'm close and, you know, I'm on target for hitting those numbers. And that's just a fun thing. It wasn't even a target for me. It was never my goal. But now it's kind of a fun thing because I have big goals of where I want to donate, what I want to do. And it's going to take yes. a billion dollars to do that. I'm, I'm on the verge of it. I'm moving in the right direction. But what I found is much more rare than a billionaire is somebody that's happy every effing day, whether it goes well or not. I mean, that's rare. I interviewed all these 50 billionaires. Some of them, you know, guys like Ray Dalio and Carl Icahn have become good friends of mine. Yeah. And, you know, the number of these types of people that really have a beautiful, happy life, you know, some guys I've mentioned have managed to really enjoy their life. But the majority of them, I would say the answer is no. Yep. And so, and that's not because they have money and don't have money. Money just makes you more of who you are. If you're mean, you got more to be mean with. If you're loving and giving, you have more to give with. But what it really does is it just challenges us to say, it doesn't matter what you get in life. The only thing that's going to make you happy is if you put to bed this two million year old brain that we all have that's always looking for what's wrong to survive. And you bring back your own consciousness. And you develop a simple habit of breaking the pattern in 90 seconds. Do that. And you'll have a level of joy that's amazing because love and joy is all around us. That's Corners awesome. No, and so down that road, two questions. You just ninety percent answered it, but I just I want people to hear this from you, and then we'll put a bow on it. I'm so grateful, by the way, for this. Um, well, thanks for having me on it. I enjoy it. You just enjoy you. you just I do too, brother. You just answered this, um, but I'd like you just to finish it. I, ultimately, people that listen to this that are involved with almost anything that you do, whether they want more money or they want uh, their life to compound, they just want to be happier. What do, and you just answered how to change that state, but what do the, you've been all over the world in all these countries, millions of people have been to your stuff. You've met millions of people. You've met the, some of the most influential people in the world and you are wonderful to everybody. What do the most happy people, fulfilled people have in common, in your opinion? What's their common trait? There's zero question that the happiest people in the world is two things they do. They have decided, I'll give you an investment metaphor. If you ask me, what were the things that I found in common amongst the greatest investors in the world? Because many of them are really different. Macro traders, you know, some guys are, you know, they take over companies. I can give you 20 different ways they make it. But what they all have in common, for example, is they're obsessed with not losing money. Well, people that are happy are obsessed with being happy no matter what. Or more important than happy, usually having a meaningful life. Because not everything is happy. That's bullshit. Right. But meaning, you can find meaning in anything. You can find a reason for life being valuable. Sometimes being in pain is a meaningful thing because it makes you find an answer that can help not only you, but help other people as well. So mm. I think the most happy people have decided to be happy, but also they're focused on finding meaning and empowering meaning and then comes. They figure out how to use life, not be used by life. Mm. I mean, if you, if you know, if I asked you who, you know, what's the number one, um, the number one rated desire when they ask people in North America, what do you want? What's the number one goal they'd like to achieve? And they ask him, if you could have anything, what would you want? The number one answer is to win the lottery. Wow. And if you ask people, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? They ask people, what's the best thing? They'll go win the lottery. What's the worst thing? The number one answer by far is to become a quadriplegic. Hmm. Now, here's what's interesting. They did a five-year study on those two groups of people, people that won the lottery versus people that became a quadriplegic overnight. And the question is, who do you think is happier five years later? It sounds like a setup, right? Most people yeah. go, okay, well, it doesn't make sense, but you've got to be kidding me. It must be the people there that are, you know, got a quadriplegic. No, but it's also not true that the person's any happier than oh, <laughs> that, wow. that, you know, $100 wow. million that they won from the lottery. Wow. What they found is we have, an, we have a psychological set point, and people get back to that same set point. Gosh, isn't you, that amazing? People that are, are unhappy, it doesn't matter how many billions of dollars, how many people love them, they'll still be unhappy. People that are happy, and everything goes wrong, and still God is with them, as you described earlier in this conversation with your friend. So it's like making the decision to no longer suffer, developing the habit of saying, I'm going to catch it within 90 seconds. Now, when I first started doing it, it should have been the 90-hour rule yeah. or 90-minute you know, rule. But, you know, I really, it's like a muscle. The more you do it, the better it gets. And I can really authentically say 99% of the time, there's exceptions when something might hook me a little bit more and I have to do harder work. 
But 99% of the time, I can get out of it now. And that certainly wasn't true before. And it's finding the empowering meaning. And that's also just having a mission beyond yourself. As long as everything is about you, you're going to suffer. Because I hear mothers, for example, say, well, I'm so stressed about my children because they're not doing well in school. And I say, let's be honest. You're really stressed not about your children. You're stressed because you feel you failed them. Because if you were just concerned about your children, you'd be working on the solution. But instead, you're stressing out inside because you feel like you failed them. And in that state of feeling like a failure, your energy drops. And as your energy drops, you're not going to come up with an answer. And then it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy with more worry, more pain, more problems. Break out. Break out by finding something you'd be grateful for. Break out by stop focusing on yourself, focusing on those you want to serve. That's the secret. Find something you care about more than yourself, something you want to serve more than yourself, a mission, a family member, you know, a business, something, and you won't have to worry about having any drive, any hunger, or any enjoyment in your life. It'll pretty much set you up for fulfillment as long as you break the pattern of those negative thoughts that everybody has. It's part of the mind. It's 2 million years old, but you can break it with some new habits. If you're conscious of it. That study blows my mind between the paraplegics and the lottery. Isn't that mind-boggling? I still can't even get over that. Okay, we're going to finish right here, but I I don't want to finish by asking you, how do you want to be remembered? You're 57 years old. It's a little premature (laughs) for that. Yeah, I think so too. But you did mention earlier, just a little insight for everybody. If you don't mind sharing, this would be personal, but you're 57, and over the next decade, could you share with us, because you're so outcome-driven, you mentioned about becoming a billionaire, and I know the reason you want to do that is because it gives increase your capacity to give. I know that about you. But what can you share with us what a couple of your outcomes are for the next decade of your life? Just how does Tony Robbins think? What are what are a couple of the things he's focused on? My number one is feed a billion people. I'm a third the way there already right now, so I'll get that done in seven years. My number two is I'm currently providing 150,000 people a day with fresh water in India because children there. Uh, die of waterborne disease and it's the easiest solution in the world to create so i want to get that to a million people a day um i right now i'm helping to provide right now the, the internet provides unlimited resources to humans but if you can't read write and do fundamental arithmetic it's worthless and we do not have enough teachers for the 250 million children in the world who are illiterate and the one out of seven adults that are illiterate so I partnered with Elon Musk and I partnered with the X Prize, my friend Peter Diamandis, and created a $15 million prize. I put up a million of it myself. And what we have right now is we have a whole group of people that all around the world that are competing and producing software that works on an, uh, on an iPad device. And it'll teach a child that we're testing it over the next six months. The team that wins, we get to, they win $15 million, but the, it's open source. So then anyone can use this so we can educate people all around the world. I'm a partner in, in, in crime, so to speak, in breaking crime, so to speak, with a group that's called Underground Railroad. And I've, I can't say where because I just got back from one of them, but I just went to a third world country where what this group does is they're made up of past CIA, FBI, and Special Forces guys. Just, God, incredible men's men, strong, smart, strategic. And what they do is they go out and they set up and capture these guys that have children and boys and girls that are locked up in sexual slavery. And so we just, we just freed 32 kids and locked up 16 perpetrators the other day. And I was undercover literally with makeup because I don't really blow back for my family. I have movie makeup, the whole thing, and I'm helped to make this thing happen. So I provide the money for it. I provide also resources and I participate in it. But I want to, I'm going to, I've freed, freed now 350 girls and boys and I want to free 2000 of them as my, as my next target to give you an idea. So I have, most of my goals are really related to philanthropy at this stage of my life. Yeah. And then I just want to continue to get better. I want to take care of my body and get stronger. I just got back from Panama City, Panama, where I did stem cells. I know. And I got to tell you, <laughs> uh, I'm talking about cord stem cells, not yeah. fetal tissue, obviously. Yeah. I'd never do that. But yeah. your stem cells and mine are, you know, a little bit older. You go down there and you get a 10-day-old stem cells. And I have had pain in my back for the last year at a level I can't even tell you. And I get on stage for 50 hours. I got up the third day of these stem cells for 20 minutes each. And I got up and walked perfectly. And it's been seven days and I don't have an ounce of pain. I don't know how it's going long it's going to last, but it's amazing. So I'm con- going to continue. I'm, I'm investing in with a, the number one guy, Bob Harari, in the stem cell area. I'm investing in nanotechnology. I'm invested in the technologies that can literally change the quality of life for people all over the earth. And I want to help make those things so they're cost effective because right now they're not, but they will become that and they're going to change our lives. The next 10 to 15 years of our lives without exaggeration, without hyperbole are going to bring things to our lives that are, will look like what you would consider magic today. 
the transformations of our bodies, the transformations of the economy, the transformations of how we work and what we do are all coming, and I want to stay on the cutting edge of all that. So that's a little taste of it. (laughs) That's wonderful. I hope people paid attention to that. I've never had somebody answer that question so reflexively and specifically in my life. Just boom, it was right on the tip of your tongue and your your subconscious. So, Tony, this was – I don't even know what to tell you. I mean – I, my, this exceeded. We're supposed to. Tr- what are we we're supposed to trade our expectations? How do you say appreciation. that? Appreciation. Tr- yeah, trade your expectations for appreciation. That's yeah. when your life changes in that moment, right? Yeah. So we're expecting things and we're disappointed. But if we instead just appreciate what we have, it's amazing the momentum of energy you get from that. And then there's more of you to give, more of you to receive, more to enjoy in this life. So yeah, that's well, my goal: always add more value, give more than anybody expects to receive. That's uh, the target. I think that's the key to business. It's the key to life. Unbelievable! This exceeded my expectations, and I am appreciative beyond words. As are the people listening to this. So I love you, brother. Thank you so much for taking this much time i know we went way over and um i'll talk with you soon but god bless thanks so much tony thank you brother i'll see you up there probably at gazer take care yourself okay all right take care bye-bye ed milet is one of the top business leaders and peak performance experts in the world today leading and coaching the elite in business sports and politics you're next